Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Well, everyone, welcome back to a very exciting episode of the Storybox podcast. It's very exciting for me today, especially because I've got one of the experts in adolescence. He's probably the best ex- expert that I personally know about or find, and his his work is quite well known by a lot of people. His name is Lawrence Steinberg. Now, if you don't know who he is, I am going to do a real flip at the moment. So. Lawrence, can I please ask you, for those people that don't know who you are, are you able to do a quick, short introduction? Because your work is long, it's great, it's excellent, but instead of me explaining it, would you be able to do me the honor? Sure, happy to. Um, I am a developmental psychologist, and I specialize in adolescence and young adulthood. I am a professor at Temple University in Philadelphia, where I teach courses to both undergraduates and graduate students, almost always on adolescent development. Um, I um, have a PhD in developmental psychology from Cornell University, and I have been um, specializing in adolescence for my entire career, which um, I'm, I'm surprised to hear myself say is nearly 50 years at this point, um, but I love it. Um, I think it's the most fascinating period of human development, and maybe we'll get into why I think that, but there are just so many changes going on um, physically, intellectually, emotionally, socially. So if you if you want to understand how we become the people that we are as adults, I think you have to really look at adolescence because it's a formative period and not just transitional period. Yeah. Um, I'm a father and a grandfather. Um, And so uh, for better or for worse, I try to apply what I know as a developmental psychologist to my behavior um, as a dad and as a granddad. Um, But you'd have to talk to my uh, family to see if I was doing a good job um, at that. But um, I've written a lot for popular audiences as well as for academic readers and my latest book is called You and Your Adult Child, 
Um, and we can talk about why I wrote that and why I think there's a need for that. Um, but let's let's get on with it. Let's do it. Welcome so much to the Storybox podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. It's an honor to ha- actually have you here because you're touching on the most important topic, I think, for humans to fully understand and grasp. And that is how in the world do we develop? How in the world do we grow up to being the adults that we should be? And it starts with obviously this process called adolescence. And I guess the the best place for us to start is, well, for me, I wanted to know how you're feeling about your book first and foremost coming out, which is talking about uh, you and your adult child. So you as a parent helping or the relationship between you and your adult child. So how are you feeling about the book first and foremost? And I mean, you've been studying and talking about adolescence for a very long time, but how are you feeling about it all today? Well, um, since the book was published just about a week ago, I'm in that stage that authors are in where they're very angsty about um, how their book is going to do because it takes a while for um, a book to uh, to become known. And so you really don't know if it's going to be successful or not. But um, let me say a little bit about the backstory of the book because it's it's interesting in its own right. Um, I wish I could say that it was my idea to write it. It wasn't. Um, it was an idea that was hatched at an organization called AARP, um, which is mainly known, I think, in the United States. It used to stand for the American Association of Retired Persons. It no longer is that. It's just the... You know, it's like KFC used to be Kentucky Fried Chicken, and now it's just KFC. Um, But AARP is an organization that supports and advocates for adults who are 50 and older. Um, And they began hearing from their members um, that their members were having trouble dealing with their adult children, that they were facing a lot of challenges that they were not prepared for, hadn't expected, hadn't thought about. Um, and there were no resources out there for them. So AARP has a longstanding relationship with the publisher, Simon & Schuster, Mm. um, and they've done books together on various topics. So they approached Simon & Schuster and said, we think there's a need for a book for parents of adult children. And just luckily for me, the person who answered the phone at Simon & Schuster was my editor. Um, and he and he reached out to me um, and uh, and asked if I was interested in writing the book. And I said, sure, it is interesting um, because I think that having an adult child is different today than it has been in the past. And I understand why a lot of parents are perplexed by it. Um, and so I spent the next year working on this book. Um, and I hope it's helpful, um, because apparently, you know, there's a need. AARP has 37 million members. Um, and so it obviously wasn't just a handful of people that prompted them to say, we need a book on this subject. So I think there are a lot of, um, parents out there who just don't know what to do. And if I can help strengthen their relationships with their children, um, you know, I think it's 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 it'll be good for their mental health and the mental health of their kids. 
you've written, I believe, 16 other books. Am I correct in saying you wrote The Age of Adolescence? Is that is that right? Um, I it's called The Age of Age of Opportunity. Ah, that's right. Um, Sorry. Yeah. And that um that is a book that is about rethinking what adolescence is. And instead of thinking about it as a problematic time, which is the stereotype, yeah. um, that we should begin thinking about it as a time of opportunity and an opportunity that we're not really taking advantage of. Uh, and there I focused mainly or a lot on the neuroscience of adolescence. So I'm a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Temple, um, and I don't do brain imaging research on my own, but I have collaborators who do, and we write together um, about that. And um, there have been just some remarkable discoveries about brain development during adolescence that I think the public isn't fully aware of Mm. And that I think have important implications for for parents and for educators and for practitioners. And that's what I tried to do in Age of Opportunity. Is puberty and adolescence the same thing? There's no. two different words? They're two different words. Um, puberty refers specifically to the biological events that separate, that, that, that um, mark the end of childhood. Yeah. at least as a biological phenomenon. Um, and adolescence is both a biological and a, a social or a cultural uh, stage. So to make the distinction very clear for our listeners, um, all mammals go through puberty. Um, but I think humans are the only ones, maybe some other uh, apes, um, that go through a period that I think would be fair to call adolescence. Um, so uh, that said, um, as scientists, we've learned an awful lot about human behavior around the time of puberty by looking at other species and how their behavior changes as well, um, because very similar hormonal changes take place across um, mammals. And one thing about puberty that's very important that we're only now beginning to understand is that in addition to its effects on our sexual development and on our physical appearance, which is what I think most people associate with puberty, yeah. um, this, the same hormones have a profound effect on the brain. And they change um, the way the brain works. And importantly, and this was a very important theme in Age of Opportunity, they increase the, the brain's malleability, or the neuroscientific word for it is plasticity. Yeah. Um, they increase the brain's ability to change in response to experience. Um, and that's why I called the book of age of age of opportunity because the same the same brain plasticity that makes adolescence a potentially worrisome time um, because the brain can be harmed by toxic experiences. Yeah. Um, also makes the adolescence an opportune time because it means that, um, that people are more capable of learning. Um, and there is research showing that people learn faster during adolescence than during other periods of development. And it also means that for kids who are having problems, um, we can be more confident that interventions um, will will have a greater impact. And so it's it's a it's an opportune time both to develop new 
capabilities, but also to profit from rehabilitative um, experiences. So, uh, yeah, they're not they're not the same. Um, and one uh, one debate that often goes on is whether adolescence is merely an invention mm. uh, or whether it's real. Um, and I think that puberty is real. I mean, there's no denying that the way that we construct this social stage that we call adolescence is an invention. Um, And in modern industrialized societies um, like those that you and I live in, um, adolescence is defined in a particular way that isn't necessarily the case um, around the world. Um, Although it's becoming more so as, as media has become more accessible all over the world, there's been a kind of homogenization of the adolescent experience. And so the experience of being a teenager, let's say in Asia or Africa, um, is not all that different from the experience of being a teenager um, in Australia or in the United States or um, in, in England. So um, uh, it, 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 it's endlessly fascinating to me. As a period. Um, and I'm glad you asked the question because it's fascinating to me, both because of the biology of the period, and I've written a lot about that, but also because of the impact of culture on the period mm-hmm. and then the impact of adolescence on the broader culture. Because teenagers, in some senses, define what the fads and fashions are in society, and adults often um, are, are kind of late to the party. Um, but they often follow exactly what the young people are doing in terms of um, clothing and music and popular culture and so on. We would obviously in the Western cultures have a very different understanding of what adolescence actually is and how it plays a role in our developmental stage growing up, whereas other cultures may not see it the way we see it, which I think is fascinating as well. But I also heard you say like this whole debate going on, whether or not it's a made up thing or whether or not it is a a natural construct. Is it a natural occurrence? Like we know puberty is a natural occurrence, isn't it? And then adolescence just is like that process or the stage it follows through with puberty. Is that that correct in my my understanding? Yeah. You know, I I think that if you – if you look at recorded history, what you find is that societies have always recognized that there is a period between childhood and adulthood. Yeah. Um, how they've described that period varies over historical time. Although, interestingly enough, if you go back and you look at the writings of Greek philosophers um, and you read what Aristotle had to say about like, this uh, period of development, yeah. I mean, he described young people as kind of rude to their elders and impulsive. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and so every every generation has branded um, the the next one up, the you know the adolescent generation as deficient in some way. And um, and what's interesting to me as somebody that studied this for such a long period of time is that each time this happens. Um, people think of it as a as a new thing, and I point out it, people have been saying this about kids for you know hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Um, and the current debate, for example, around social media and mm-hmm. its impact on kids' mental health and behavior, um, is reminiscent 
of debates that were had about um, the internet, computers, rock and roll. I mean, you can go back and find fascinating congressional hearings in the United States about the devastating impact of comic books on young people's mental health. Uh, So, yes, absolutely. I'll send you a link to the transcript of this of the presentations before the Senate um, about how this was ruining a generation of people. And if you didn't know what it was about, you would think it was about Facebook or you would think it was about Instagram. And it wasn't. It was about comic books. And people said this about the radio and people said it about dime store novels. Um, I mean, it's just, it, 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 it is always present that when that adults view adolescence as a difficult time, and they attribute the difficulty to something in the popular culture or some technology um, that adolescents are into that that they're not or that they're not familiar with. Um, I happen to be one of those persons who thinks that the narrative about how social media is harming the well-being of young people is overblown, and there isn't a lot of research to support that argument, but Social media is kind of the latest victim um, of a very long-standing story that societies like to tell about young people. How about the correlation between kids becoming addicted to a screen or becoming addicted to the aspect of watching something, whether it's YouTube or watching videos on a social media platform? Is there any distinction between more kids becoming addicted that affects their ability to grow up properly? Well, I think it's really hard to, to, to make generalizations without talking about the substance um, of it. It's like asking whether television is bad for children without, you know, differentiating between, uh, you know, public television documentaries about nature, which teach people a lot of things and trashy television. And we know that there's both. And so if you ask me what the impact of television is on kids development, I'd say, well, what programs are you talking about? And I, and I have the same feeling about social media and, you know, YouTube and Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok, whatever. Um, I think we know that there's some good that's out there. In social media, and and there are programs and platforms um, from which kids learn a lot of things, um, and we're not going to snap our fingers and make it go away. So I think what we need to figure out how to do um, is to teach young people and adults, for that matter, to be more discerning about the screen time that they uh, that they spend, um, and to to help differentiate between things they see that are true and things they see that aren't true. Um, but, but I also think it's the case that it's very hard in correlational research to separate cause and effect, right? So let's say that there is a correlation and there is, it's very small, but there is a correlation between screen time and depression um, among young people. It's been widely publicized. Um, But what hasn't been said is that it's also quite plausible that people who are depressed spend more time on screens because of their depression, not the other way 
around. Um, and there aren't very many studies can really that really can separate cause and effect. And so when we hear that there's this correlation, we need to be very careful about jumping to conclusions about whether the screen time is causing the depression or whether the depression is causing the screen time. And obviously, um, whichever of those is true, and my guess is that that's true for some people, um, that is the causal direction works in one way for some people and in the opposite way for other people. But clearly, what we do about it depends on what the on, on what the causal direction is for most people. One other point, and then we can move on, because um, this topic has received a lot of attention. Yeah. The, the surveys show that three times as many kids say that they feel better about themselves because of what they see on social media than say they feel worse about themselves. And so if we if we prohibited young people from using social media, we would be depriving a very significant percentage of the adolescent population and the young adult population from an experience that may have beneficial effects um, on them. So I, I think we need to proceed a little more cautiously and a little more slowly um, than than what the popular press is indicating. So the digital age for say the my generation, millennials and Gen Z, there's no say there's no what 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 are the negatives involved with uh, adolescents for for kids regarding the whole aspect of growing up in a digital world? Are there significant negatives? Yeah, but I think that it's probably more about what screen time is displacing yeah. than it is about the screen time itself. All right, and so when parents asked me. Um, if they should worry about their kids' um, screen time. I asked them, well, let's back up a bit. What would your son or what would your daughter be doing with this time if they weren't spending it on social media, if they weren't spending it on their smartphones? And if they say, oh, well, they'd be watching television or they'd be playing video games or, you know, whatever, um, I would say, well, I wouldn't worry about it then because I'm not sure that those activities are any different in terms of their impact on kids' well-being. Um, but if the screen time is displacing sleep, which is very important to um, all of us, especially children and teenagers, if it's displacing exercise, if it's displacing time with their family, if it's displacing reading, if it's displacing paying attention to what's going on in school, um, then it's not good for kids. But my, my point is that it's not the screen time per se. It's yeah. the time, right? And and that and that's why I think that it's good for parents to limit the amount of time that their kids spend um, on their phones or on their tablets or on their computers, um, rather than to say that 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 those devices are somehow harming them, um, because I don't see any evidence that that's the case. No, it's like saying that it, with anything, too much of a good thing or too much of a bad thing is eventually going to lead you down the path of ultimate destruction. To be honest with you, like you can't overload yourself with even good things. <laughs> like it's not it's not going right. to be beneficial to you or your right. brain. Our brains weren't designed to 
overload itself with this one particular thing because then it just has significant negative repercussions, I believe. Right. Yeah. And and so let's let's not forget that sleep deprivation is associated with depression and anxiety and substance use. Um, and so if screen time is depriving kids from getting the amount of sleep they need, and most people I think would be very surprised to hear that during adolescence and young adulthood, people need eight or nine hours of sleep a night for um, for healthy development. Now, very few kids get that. But if they're only getting five because they're up until two o'clock in the morning um, chatting with their friends on uh, you know, on their phones, and they have to get up at seven to get to school, um, then, yeah, it's no surprise that they're going to be depressed. But it's because they're not getting enough sleep, not because they're spending all this time texting with their friends. What do you think is contributing to the increasing spikes of mental health problems in this generation today? I think it's a lot of things that have an additive or cumulative effect. I don't think it's any one thing. And I think that that, that is the wrong way to think about it, that, that is to decide where are we going to point this finger. I mean, I think I, I can rattle off a number of things. I mean, one um, certainly is um, the the impact that bad social media may have on kids' self-esteem and self-conceptions. So when you are um, posting things about yourself and people are making fun of it. Yeah. Or when you're finding out that your friends are doing all these fun novel things and you're not invited, of course, it's going to make you feel worse about yourself. Um, so that's a contributor. I don't deny that at all. I think that schools have become academically very competitive. Um, and um, in fact, there there is um, a book coming out by Jenny Wallace in the fall about the toxic academic environments of schools. Mm. I don't know what it's like in Australia, in the United States. It has gotten really out of hand in terms of what we are expecting from young people um, to do. I think that the that a lot of young people are quite concerned about climate change. And, you know, they're hearing all the time that the world won't be there for them when mm -hmm. they get to be a certain age. And just imagine hearing that message over and over again and what it does to your mental health. Oh, yeah. I think that the the political divisiveness that is all over, um, certainly all over the Western world now, um, is also taking its toll on mental health. Uh, you know, I think in some ways it's a little insulting to young people to believe that the only thing they care about um, is their Instagram feed. Young people care about politics. They care about the environment. Um, they care about how they're going to do in life. And when they constantly hear that they're never going to be able to have a standard of living that even approaches what their parents have, that they're not going to be able to afford to buy a home, mm -hmm. um, that they're going to have difficulty getting a, a, a satisfying job, um, of course, it's going to make them feel depressed and anxious. Who wouldn't if those were the messages that you were hearing over and over again? And so, you know, you and I were chatting before we be began recording our conversation. I think it's a very, very tough time to be um, in your 20s or even in your 30s today um, for all of these very objective 
reasons. So it's not it's not something that young people are imagining. I mean, they they are hearing about the circumstances of life and about their life chances. Um, and uh, they're under a tremendous amount of stress. And we know that there is a strong link between stress and mental health problems, um, especially, as I point out, in you and your adult child, the link between stress and mental health problems is especially strong during this age um, because the brain is so responsive to the environment. And so people are much more stress responsive um, during adolescence and young adulthood than they are during childhood or, um, let's say, in the late 20s and beyond. It sounds like there's a, a ton of pressure being put on the shoulders of these young kids. And it's like unfair for them because the kind of world that has been created at the moment for them. I mean, sure, there are a ton of opportunities, but in order for them to get that opportunity, they've got to fight and they've got to compete with so many other people in order to get it. <laughs> and it's right. like if that person doesn't match up to the standards of the school or society, for example, then obviously they feel like, or if they're comparing themselves on social media too, to some other person, and it looks like what that other, that, that person is doing compared to them is a lot better. And obviously that, that will contribute to them feeling inadequate and obsolete and it won't give them any motivation or any inspiration to want to try hard enough. So obviously I totally am in line with that uh, thinking too, because I see it, I felt it a little bit growing up, um, even though here in Australia, it's a little bit different, but even still, you've got this societal pressure and you, you even put pressure on yourself at some points because you learn it from other people. Like you want to be at a certain level, like you you want to have the house, you want to have the job, you want to be up here because you see so many other people up there and, and you kind of see yourself in, in your brain being happy in that level. But then obviously you don't actually know what that person's going through. So it's this false, false narrative that is being told to so many young people that if you don't succeed in this particular way, then you're not going to be happy. So it's it's a, an alarming and it's a damaging narrative for a lot of young people and their mental health. That's the way I see it. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that um, we are demanding a level of competence and capability um, and, frankly, perfection mm. um, that is out of reach for, you know, for, for most people. And it's, it's even worse than that because not only do you need to be perfect, you need to act as if you're not trying very hard to be perfect as well. <laughs> I mean, so it's like this studied casual perfection that you have, um, academically, athletically, artistically, socially, societally. I mean, you, you it, it is, it is an impossible expectation for for young people and they they then as you were saying they then compare themselves to others and they find themselves deficient in some way so social media has to come back to where we were earlier social media has enabled people to compare themselves to others much more easily but the problem isn't social media it's the pressure to be a certain kind of person and mm -hmm. to engage in that comparison. Social media is just the mechanism through which people do the comparison, but the problem is the constant comparing. 
yeah, you can't necessarily blame the tool. <laughs> you got to blame right. the person that is on the tool or using the tool. It's like right. that, the handyman blaming his hammer for not working properly. Yes, exactly. he's probably not using the hammer properly. That right. kind of line of thinking. So it, it's almost as if a lot of young people that go on social media, they want to create this perfect life for, and especially the celebrity culture too. It's like nobody, these young people that are seeing it, they're looking at the way that a woman looks or even a guy, they're comparing their bodies, they're comparing their life to that of a celebrity. And they got to understand that they're not them. And the likelihood of them becoming them as well is like you shouldn't worry about that so much. Like you should worry about figuring out who you are first and foremost, which is another level entirely, which we can go down. Like the whole identity culture now is being shifted and it's crazy to see because you don't necessarily know whether or not that person actually is happy being their true authentic self if there's a confliction between all that. So there's so many different narratives being spun to young people through social media, even though social media itself is not necessarily the bad thing, but it's just a platform where the message can be spread. So it's a hard, hard way to, to sort of navigate this, these, all these different narratives and kids just don't fully know how to do it and they get sucked in it. And then that leads them down a very, very dark spiral. Right. And I think to add to that, I think a lot of kids, um, for one reason or another, don't have the support of their families, of their parents. Um, and um, because their their parents are under a, a ton of pressure, too. Um, and so when I hear parents complain that their kids, let's say, are on their phones all the time, um, and I say, have you looked in the mirror? <laughs> have you looked at your own behavior? Yeah, I mean, all of themselves after you. Yeah. And, you know, you see, you go to a restaurant, you see a family out to dinner and you see everybody around the table scrolling through their phones. Um, and so it's, it, 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 it is the modeling, as you say, but it's also, I think, the absence of commitment, um, from parents to the important work of raising children. Um, and, and I don't blame parents for it because in lots of respects, the workplace has now become it's infiltrated family life in a way that is not healthy for people. Um, and so, you know, there, there isn't the boundary between work and home that there had been. So you get home, you, you know, you have a commute, you get home from your job. And the first thing you do is you see that you have 20 emails that have arrived you know, during the half hour, 45 minute commute that you just went on and where people expect you to respond right away. Um, and then you respond and then you check before you go to sleep at night because there's another, you know, batch of messages that you need to respond to. And then you wake up in the morning. And so it's, it's ever present. And all of this, I think, interferes with parents being able to, um, to be as good to their kids uh, as they would like to be and as they as they need to be. Yeah, the whole parent 
conversation is also equally important because they're the ones that are meant to guide the child. And if the parents aren't necessarily guiding the child, then society's going to do it for them. And if it's any track record of how society is heading at the moment and what they're doing to the kids, it's not a good look. <laughs> right. And yeah. And and so I, I have an earlier book called the 10 basic principles of good parenting. Yeah. Um, and the first principle in there is what you do matters. Because I think that also parents have been misled to believe that all these other influences, whether it's the media or the peer group or some other societal force, um, e either override or undo or interfere um, with what parents are trying to do. Um, and I, I think it's important to remind parents that despite all of these other forces, that they remain the most important influence on their kids' development. Um, and I think it's 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 time that we reassured parents that they do matter and that what they do is very, very important. Oh, absolutely. I, I totally am, am for that, um, especially considering that there are so many new narratives being spun in the world at the moment and parents themselves need to know how to understand those narratives how to explain them to their child and explain why this is either right or why it's wrong and why they should either follow it or why they shouldn't follow it i think that is a it's not the job of the government to do that it's not the job of social media to do that it's the job of the parent because in the end the child is either going to listen to the parent or they're going to listen to their peer group or they're going to listen to someone that they look up to the most, a coach, you name it, uh, if they trust them. So I think it's also a good un understanding for parents to be, to be able to establish that level of trust with their child uh, first and foremost. And that comes without right. a reason, right? Yes, um, that's right. And um, in, in the... The adolescence has been extended and has been prolonged. Um, it takes people longer to become adults nowadays than it did. And we see this reflected in um, the demographic statistics that we have about the age at which people finish their college education if they go to college. Um, at the age at which they become financially independent, the age at which they establish their own household, the age at which they marry, the age at which they become parents, if they choose to become parents. All of this has been pushed mm. into um, the, the late 20s and even into the 30s now. Um, and so it takes my calculation in you and your adult child is that it takes the current generation, your generation, 50% um, longer to, to make the transition into adulthood than it took your parents' generation. Um, and what, what that means for parents is that their role in their kids' lives um, has become more important now, even when their kids are adults, um, mm -hmm. than it was in the past, which is why I think so many parents contacted AARP and said, we need help with this. We didn't expect our child to be living at home when he was 28 
years old. We didn't expect our daughter to need financial assistance from us when she was 32 years old. Um, and, and I think that the 28-year-old didn't expect to be living at home when he was 28. And the 32-year-old didn't expect to depend on her parents for financial support when she was 32. And so there's a whole new territory of challenges that both young people and their parents need to navigate today that didn't exist really, you know, a generation ago. So that's not that concept of failure to launch in a mass scale? Well, you know, um, it, uh, I don't like the expression because <laughs> it, it it implies that there's Neither something... Do I. <laughs> It, it implies that there's something deficient about the young person when I think that it's forces that have been out of their control that have led to this situation. But I do think that it is telling, you know, that the Matthew McConaughey movie was called Failure to Launch. It wasn't called Congratulations on Living with Your Parents when you're an adult. Um, so we do have a stereotype. I'm not sure what it's like where you live, but certainly in the States, um, the stereotype is that. Um, people should become independent and that people that are still living with their parents when they're past college age have something the matter with them. Um, I don't believe that that's true. Uh, and um, I think there are plenty of countries in the world where it's the norm to live with your parents. Italy is a very good example of a country where yeah. um, people in their 20s continue to live with their parents um, un un until they get married and have the resources to establish their own household. So, um, yeah, it's not a failure. If it's a failure to launch, it's society's failure, not not the young people's failure. Oh, amen. <laughs> and even, even the name like failure to launch, like where are you supposed to launch to exactly? Like exactly society's meant to say you, you launch out into the world okay fair enough let's let's launch our child out into the world but what if that child isn't actually ready financially mentally emotionally socially everything so you're just gonna boil it down to failure like they've failed <laughs> right That's and let's and, and and let's let's also consider that there are young people who are emotionally and socially ready but don't have the financial resources. And so what is what what does that paradox do to their mental health and to their relationship with their parents? Because they may feel internally like they're mature enough to be independent, competent adults, but they may still need their parents because of social forces that have affected them in ways, as I said, that are beyond their control. I mean, you have different cultures whereby the parents will still live with the child or the child will still live with the parent. It's just in Western countries, I think we've just got it all shifted backwards in, in a weird way. It's like how we've we just shifted the the different yeah, the different narrative for some reason to, to make it like you you must be doing this, otherwise you're not successful. You're not this, you're not that. But when you look at different other cultures, there are a lot happier. And I think there's something to be said about that, especially because how important your parents actually are. If you get along with your parents too. I mean, I get along with my parents really, really well, and I love spending time with them. I'm still living at home and there's reasons as to why that is. And But it doesn't mean that I'm not ready to live on my own. I have all the capabilities and all the skill sets to be able to do that. Doesn't mean- And, that you're, and you know, you're hardly a failure. 
<laughs> so I think to say that you've somehow failed in life because you're living with your parents um, is is absolutely ridiculous. Um, but but Western societies place a premium on independence. That's our that's our measure of maturity. Um, in in many Asian and African cultures and and South American cultures, um, they value what what social scientists call interdependence. Mm-hmm. That is, they would they would think that the mark of maturity is is being able to be a member of a strong family group, not to be an independent person. And that in those cultures, the family is much more important than the individual members of the family. We spoke about a moment ago, which I think is a very interesting point, the the age factor when it comes down to going through adolescence and how it's shifted like it takes a, a lot longer for a child to end up becoming an adult these days, which means that we can't necessarily rely on age as a contributing factor. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and, and one thing that I caution parents against doing is is comparing their child's progress, if you want to use that word, um, with their own timetable when they were growing up. I, oh, this is so good. <laughs> I lost you there for a second. You might cut out, sorry. Huh. It shouldn't have. No? Is it still cut out? You're back now. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I think that um, when I was your age um, is the wrong way to think about it. Um, Because, yes, you were once their age, but the circumstances were very, very different um and you can't really compare the two yeah it speaks to me so much so i have uh a couple of my good friends that are one is a little bit older than me and several a bit younger than me and they've all flown the coop they've all gotten married and yet here i am still at home working on my business not married yet all this kind of stuff. And I'm 26 years old. And it's kind of like this expectation of, hey, when is Jay going to get married and fly the coop kind of thing? And my my dad has sort of hinted at it <laughs> several different yeah. times. So this really does speak to me because it goes back to the whole level of comparison, doesn't it? Well, you can tell your dad that the average age of marriage for college-educated people now is around 32 years old, not 26 years old. So it would be very, very unusual. Um, and I think this is – in fact, I think in in Great Britain in general, the age of marriage is even later than it is in the United States. And so I think it would be highly unusual for somebody of your obvious skill and education to be married at the age of 26. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you've obviously managed to create a really interesting and successful life for yourself. And maybe part of that is because you have the support of your parents. Um, and that if you didn't have that support, you wouldn't be able to do what you're doing. It, it simply takes longer for people to become adults now in, in, in that conventional sense of the word, um, 
than it did in your parents' generation. And 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 parents need to know that. So what I say um, in the book is, if you want to compare where your child is to where you were, subtract five years from your age when you're making the comparison. And so if they're saying, well, where was I when, you know, when I was 26, like Jay is, um, no, that's not the comparison. They should be asking where they were where they when they were 21 and comparing that to where you are at the age of 26, because it takes five years longer um, to to become an adult now than it did in their generation. And that's a that's an easy rule of thumb to remember. So I, I'll, I'll tell one quick story. I know that we're running on time here, but um, when I was recording the audio book, of you and your adult child. I worked with two people who were around your age or in their late twenties. Um, one was the associate producer, young woman who lived in New York. And one was the sound engineer, young man who lived in Southern California. Um, and their exposure to my book was hearing me narrate it. They hadn't read the book before and they had to pay close attention because it's their job to ask me to retake sentences that didn't sound right. And after the first day, the young woman took me aside and she said, my parents have to read this book because they don't they don't understand me. They don't get it. And three days later, the sound engineer took me aside and said, I got to get a copy of this for my parents. And so in some senses, even though I wrote the book for parents of adult children, I think it will benefit the adult children um, to have their parents understand them and their generation better than they do. I mean, even this conversation, I'm loving it so much, which is another reason why I don't want to end. Yeah. It makes a ton of sense for me. And I hope my parents actually listen to it. And I do want to say as well and praise my parents enormously because they helped me out a lot. And I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing today if it wasn't for them. And now it, the fruits of their generosity is starting to flow. And it's also like I help a great deal with my parents. They are getting older. So as a result, I feel that I, I need to support them as well and help them as much as I possibly can, which is not a bad thing in the slightest. And I, I to be honest, think it's a more noble thing to look after your parents because they're the ones that raised you in the first place. So it's almost like you're giving back in a good way to them. I think more young people should do that and not just discount them and say, oh, thank you so much for raising me. That's it throw them in a nursing home. No, I, I don't subscribe to that one little bit at all. I think you just got to, you got to love them properly and you got to help them as much as you possibly can. Cause you know, why not? <laughs> right. No, I think that that's right. And I think that nowadays we're used to seeing parents continuing to help their adult children because of the things that we've been talking about. But Several generations ago, it was very common for children to help their um, aging parents. Very, very common. Um, and uh, I, you know, I think it's it's such an important bond, um, and the need for generosity and compassion flows both ways. It's not just in one direction. And so, um, I'm, I, you know, if living at home, and I hear this from my undergraduate students. Um, who, because of the pandemic, had to move back home, um, and I would teach remotely, and they, I would see them on the screen. They'd be in their childhood bedrooms, sitting on their beds, surrounded by their stuffed animals, um, taking my seminar um, on adolescent development. Um, and But they all say the same thing, which is, 
this is not their preferred living arrangement. They'd rather be living with their boyfriend or their girlfriend or by themselves or with their friends. Um, but it's not terrible. And 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 all of them have said, I've gotten to know my parents so much better now um, because I have the adult capacity to be able to appreciate them more and to empathize with them more. And so I think it's great that young people and their parents are closer today um, than they were in the past. And I and I really encourage that. I think that's really good for for both generations. You got to try and see it from their perspective. They they're the ones who raise you, and they probably see you as that little child still. And they're trying to grasp the fact that you are now actually an adult. And there's right. a difference between a child and an adult. And I wanted to. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this, Lawrence, before we finish up. Can we trust a child at all to tell us who they actually are? I think we can once they reach a certain age. Because I think it takes time for them to figure out who they really are. Um, and um, I, I, I think that, you know, obviously it depends on the relationship that you have um, with your parents. Um, one discussion I have in, in the book is about sexual orientation and coming out to your parents and the fact that young adulthood is often the time when many young people do um, and many parents have trouble. Um, with that, with what they hear. Um, but I think, I think you can't, I think you ha as a parent have to help instill that trust in your child, um, that they can come to you and tell you who they are. Um, and you're going to love them and accept them for who they are. Um, so, but, but I think it takes a long time. We don't really figure out who we are until late adolescence or young adulthood. And so, you know, there, th that process has to unfold first before you can tell your parents who you are. Do you touch on the subject of transgenderism in the book at all? I, yep, I do. I talk about gender identity um, and I explain it. A lot of people don't really understand it. Um, and, you know, what I say to parents is, you. Your child is still the same person that they were before they revealed this to you. All that's different is now you know something more about them um, that you didn't know before. And isn't that a good thing to know to to know your child better than you did before? Um, and so I really encourage uh, parents who are struggling with this to to try to look at it in, in a different way. It takes a lot of courage for a young person to tell their parents who they really are, um, whether it's about their sexuality or about something else. Um, and um, you, if your child comes to you with an important revelation, I think you should be grateful that they feel trusting enough in you and close enough to you that they want to share this important part of who they are with you. What would be the age limit? The parents can go, no, no, you're still, you're still a child. We're not going to go along with this. What would be the, the age limit? You reckon? I don't, I don't know if chronological age is the right way to, to think about it. Um, I think that it's, it's always, it's always good for young people to let their parents know who they really are, and it's always good for parents to accept that. Um, in their child, um, whether that happens when their child is 
13 or 23 or 33 to me is less relevant than the fact that the process is a very important um, process. And I think that a lot of this kind of disclosure is going to become more common as more and more young people are living at home with their parents and their parents get to see their lives close up in a way that they didn't when they were living off at school, let's say, or um, or on their own. So um, in, in, in some ways, I, I hope that this trend toward living at home with your parents um, contributes to a better family life. Um, and instead of, you know, it gets all this negative attention. It's like the failure to launch thing. Um, and I think maybe it's time we we started thinking a little bit about the benefits um, of this or the potential benefits of it. It's not for everybody. It's not for um, kids and their parents who don't get along with each other. Or it's not for families that don't have enough space to accommodate um, another family member living there. Um, but my experience with my students is that not a single one. And I teach a lot of kids has said that it's been bad, a bad experience to move back home. So um, I think it can be valuable. Well, Lawrence, I know that we could probably spend another few hours. That's the way I feel about it all. I think this topic is very diverse and you've got a lot of experience, but I just wanted to say thank you for a talk like this. I think that more and more parents do need to read it. Same with young people too. Um, but I'm very much grateful for your time today, your wisdom, your advice, and, and for joining me on the Storybox podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jay. My pleasure. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 